0: Are you ready for Acts chapter 18? Then open up your Bibles there or, I don't know, turn on your whatever device you have and let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful. We're grateful for the opportunity to come. And Lord, hear about your great works, Lord. Think about how you're touching lives uh, at the bottom of a continent in Africa, Lord, that needs uh, so much help, so much attention, using us here, Lord, to touch their lives. It's it's staggering, God. We think about how you want to touch our community. And Lord, we, we just say, Jesus, help us, equip us, come and speak to us. You are our Lord. You have every right to tell us what to do and to speak to us. So do it now, Lord, through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Acts, we've been following the journeys of the Apostle Paul through what we call his second missionary journey. And most recently, we saw Paul as he was in the city of Athens. That's where we finished up in Acts chapter 17. But in Acts chapter 18, Paul's going to leave the city of Athens and head over to a place called Corinth. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Corinth before. Many of you are familiar that there's two letters in the New Testament 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that are uh, sent to this congregation here. Well, here in Acts chapter 18, we're going to get the story on how this congregation was started. What happened there in Corinth to birth a church that lasted there for many, many years there in Corinth. So let's begin here. Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. So Paul leaves the city of Athens, and just think about... Paul's great time in Athens, he was able there to speak in the synagogue, to speak in the marketplace, to make an impact on people in the community. But maybe his most famous opportunity in Athens was when he was able to go up to Mars Hill and speak to the... I don't know exactly what you'd call it, the philosophical debating or discussion society there on Mars Hill. And that particular message sort of had mixed results. I believe the Apostle Paul was cut short in what he really wanted to share. Nevertheless, he had a a time in Athens and he left Athens and came to Corinth. And there when he came to Corinth, he came to a city that was very different than Athens. Athens was this uh, shining city with beautiful, world-famous architecture. Athens was a city full of uh, intellect and academia. Uh, Athens was the place where the philosophers just loved to discuss on and on and on in the way that philosophers do. Corinth? Corinth was a city with two famous harbors, a city of transit, a city of commerce, a city of business, and most of all, a city of immorality. Uh, Corinth was something like Las Vegas uh, exponentially amped up. Uh, I mean, it was a. I could go on and on and tell you how immoral Corinth was. Let me just see if I can express it to you in two ways. Corinth was so uh, renowned, famous for its reputation, it's a center for immorality that to act like a Corinthian meant to be sexually immoral. If you lived in the city of Rome and you said, man, you're acting like a Corinthian, it'd be telling somebody you're sexually immoral, you're loose morally. And a Corinthian companion was slaying for a prostitute. I mean, it was just the name, the city, the reputation was synonymous with immorality. Well, there, in that sort of cesspool, pool of worldliness and corruption and immorality, the Apostle Paul met somebody really wonderful. Look at how God does this. Verse 2, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila with his wife Priscilla and he came to them. Paul, as it's noted in our text here, found his career, found his trade. He supported himself with the career of tent making and he found some other people who were also tent makers and they formed a fast friendship. Aquila and Priscilla became fast friends of the apostle Paul and some of the most notable people in the New Testament. Matter of fact, Aquila and Priscilla are fascinated because they sort of present to us one of the rare profiles of a Christian marriage of a husband and a wife serving the Lord. We'll talk more about that on later Sundays. Let's really mark what other examples do you have in the New Testament of a husband and wife both serving the Lord. What are you going, to, Ananias and Sapphira? No, that doesn't work at all, does it? You know, Peter and his wife, well, what do we know about it? Well, Peter's wife had a mom that Jesus healed. I mean, we don't know much, right? But Aquila and Priscilla, there's something special about this couple. And they became very fast, very close friends, so much so that later on in the book of Romans, Paul would write about them and he'd say, they're my fellow workers. Paul would say, they risked their necks for me. That's the kind of close relationship that he had with them. Now, again, Aquila and Priscilla, they left Rome because they had to, but they ended up in Corinth, and when they were in Corinth, they met the Apostle Paul, and their lives were changed together. I also find it fascinating that how were they connected? They were connected because they were in the same business. They were tent makers. It's just sort of this marketplace connection. It says, verse 3, for by occupation they were tent makers. Now, I need to clarify just something a little bit it'd probably be better to translate that ancient Greek word or the idea behind the word tent maker more as leather worker. Now, since tents were made out of leather, that's what leather workers primarily did. They made a lot of tents. But it wouldn't only be tents that you would make. Anything having to do with leather you would make, and that's what Paul would do. Actually, it was a great career, a great profession for the Apostle Paul because he didn't need a lot of overhead, right? You didn't need a lot of inventory, what would you do? You'd carry around a little bag with a needle, a thread, some scissors, and you go go from place to place and you just hustle up, work for you the best you could. So when the Apostle Paul came to Corinth, he didn't start taking a collection among those people that he was preaching to. There was no Christian community there. It was just brand new. And the Apostle Paul also knew a second thing. He knew that in the ancient world, and this is well documented by secular historians, in the ancient world, there were a lot of religious hucksters out on the roads. There were a lot of people traveling from city to city selling this weird New Age thing and that spiritual enlightenment and this Eastern religion, on and on. And they did it all just to scam money off of people. And Paul was determined to show to everybody, I'm not one of those. Nevertheless... Paul would receive support from other people. Later on, we're going to see that Timothy and Silas come and meet Paul in the city of Corinth. And we know that when they came, they brought with them some financial support from the churches in Macedonia. But get the point here. The point is is that Paul was a tent maker, a leather worker. He met this other family, uh, Aquila, the husband, Priscilla, the wife. They were tent makers and they started their business together. Look at what it says right there in verse three. He stayed with them. Move in, Paul. And they worked together, for by occupation they were tent makers. One more aside before we go to verse 4. Sometimes when you hear people talk about missions work today, you'll hear about people or missionaries being tent makers. Friends, when they say that, they're not meaning literal tent makers. You might be thinking, well, what are all these people making tents out on the mission field? I didn't know there was such a demand. No, no, no. To say that somebody's a tent maker in the mission field today is to say That they have some business, some career, some profession by which they support themselves in their missionary work. Uh, For example, uh, if somebody goes to China today and gets a job as someone who teaches English as a second language, and that's really their heart to go there and to work in that way and get paid for what they do. Nevertheless, their real passion is to preach the gospel and to bring people to Jesus Christ we would call that person a tent-making missionary, even though they don't literally make tents. It's all drawn by the example of the Apostle Paul here. Verse 4, it says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. I find it interesting to see the difference here between verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 tells us that Paul was doing what he did in every city where he went, right? What was Paul's calling card? You know this, right? His pattern was he's going to the city. Where's the synagogue? Uh, Because of who I am, because of my rabbinical background, they'll let me speak in the synagogue. I'll get to speak to Jewish people who should know about their coming Messiah, and I'll get to speak to Gentiles who are interested in the God of Israel. It's a win-win proposition. So Paul did what he always did. That's what verse 4 is about. But notice, verse 5 tells us, that when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit. Now, I don't think he was compelled by the flesh before, but I think there's just something in verse 5 that tells us that he was so encouraged by, his, by the coming of these two friends of his, Silas and Timothy, that he felt, man, I'm just going to get after the work all the more, and he preached the gospel even more passionately and just lifted up the ministry to a whole other level. I think that's wonderful. I think it's wonderful, first of all. That Paul did what he did in Athens and when he first came to Corinth, even though he was all by himself. The impression we get, Paul didn't like to work by himself. Paul liked having people around him. Paul liked the team. And it was a great sacrifice for him to keep dishing off people from his team everywhere he went. But he did it because he knew it was good for the gospel. But when Timothy and Silas came back from Macedonia, not only did they give a generous financial gift from the people in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, but he also received from them just their companionship and their friendship. And he was so amped up with it that he just continued the work on even more. You saw it right there in verse 5, that he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Don't you wish you could hear some of those messages? Don't you wish? I don't know. I'm persuaded, you are too, I'm persuaded that when we get to heaven, one of the great things about heaven is that we're going to be able to, through some miracle of Blu-ray or something like that, see these scenes, right? That God has them stored somehow, I don't know. But to me, heaven would be heaven if I couldn't hear Paul preach in Corinth the way that he did, right? If Paul couldn't be there and tell them, My Jewish friends, my Gentile friends, you need to know that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah. He's the one prophesied by Isaiah chapter 53. He's the sin-bearing servant. And when he hung on the cross, he bore the penalty for your sin. Look at Jesus. They're the perfect sin-bearing servant described by Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. And he would preach to them from these texts. And he's opened up their minds about who Jesus is, about what Jesus did in dying on the cross and raising from the dead for their justification. And he would present Christ and him crucified to the people there in Corinth. And people would respond. It's just wonderful to see the great response that would happen there in Corinth. But listen, you know, you know that there's another pattern that we've seen throughout the book of Acts. The pattern goes something like this, that when something good is happening, opposition comes, right? Something good was happening in Corinth. Paul was more charged up than ever, but look at the opposition coming in verse 6. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. What a scene! Okay, here's how I picture it. This is the movie that runs in my head, okay? Paul's preaching in the synagogue. And he does it week after week. And there's a lot of people who respond. There's a lot of Jewish people who respond. There's a lot of Gentiles who respond. But there's some people who don't like it. And some of the Jewish people, they become envious of Paul and his work there. And so what do they do? Verse 6 tells us that they began to oppose him and blaspheme. And I think that that really set Paul off. Oppose me? Fine. Blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ whom I preach? I'm not going to stand for that. I can just imagine These opponents shouting out blasphemous words about Jesus, shouting out disgraceful and and terrible things. And Paul would have none of it. I think Paul went a little crazy here, don't you? Just a little bit. It says he shook his garments and he said, your blood be upon your own heads. It's sort of a strong reaction from Paul, is it not? So strong, he shook his garments because he didn't want a bit of that synagogue dust to be on his garments when he walked out of there, right? It was kind of like this. Like the the, the opposition from the synagogue shouted out, Paul, you're fired as our preacher. And Paul answered back, you can't fire me, I quit. And what did he do? He stormed out of the synagogue and right next door, right? There's a guy who loves the Lord. And he says, Paul, why don't you come preach at my house? Paul says, that's a fine idea. And he begins preaching there. Now listen, this opposition that we see between Paul and, and some of the Jewish people of the Roman Empire, sometimes it makes people think that Paul must have become anti-Jewish, that Paul must have become so you know, discouraged with, with the opposition that he faced from some of the Jewish people. But no, Luke wants us to know that that's not the case. Did you see verse 8? Look at it, verse 8. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Isn't that tremendous? I mean, in the midst of all this battle, the ruler of the synagogue says, Paul, I think you're right. I'm going to move next door from the synagogue over to the house of justice. I'll just move one door over and I'll listen to your preaching. What an impact. But what a way that Luke wants us to know that Paul was not anti-Jewish, that Paul was not against Jewish people. Not at all. There were people who rejected him. There were people who rejected his words about Jesus as the Messiah. But Paul never became hateful or hardened against the Jewish people. And so what was the result of it? Look at it there in verse 8. It says, many of the Corinthians hearing, believed, and were baptized. Now, Isn't that tremendous? What could be better than that? You're the Apostle Paul. They're hearing. They're believing. They're being baptized. It's like this is heaven on earth for the Apostle Paul. No. Because look at verse 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city and he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. My friends, I'm going to base the next comments I have on a principle that God doesn't waste his speech, Right? that God doesn't speak unless it's necessary, unless it's useful. Did you notice the first words that God said to Paul? Do not be afraid. Now, despite all the success, despite the many people who were hearing, the many people who were believing, the many people who were baptized in Corinth, despite all of the success, I believe that there was a weariness in the soul of the Apostle Paul. That there was an anxiousness, a a, a fear. If you want to throw out a German word, an angst in the heart of Paul, right? Here he is. He's just feeling, well, I think first of all, he's wondering, look, it's going great, but I could get kicked out of town tomorrow. I got kicked out of Thessalonica. I got kicked out of Antioch, I got kicked out of of, uh, Berea. It could happen again tomorrow. I'm always getting kicked out. Maybe these people, the the work of God is going so good. Maybe I won't last here long. And let me tell you something. We, we want to think of the Apostle Paul as this tremendously stoic guy, right? The stiff upper lip. Nothing bothered him. Nothing set him aside. You know what? I believe it was fairly tra- traumatic to get kicked out of town after town. I think Paul got tired of it. And Paul just said, I, I want to sit down for a while and sink some roots down and some really train and disciples some Christians. I'm tired of going to a place for a few weeks and getting run out of town. So that allowed the fear. That allowed the anxiety to raise up in him. I think otherwise, too, there's... there's indefinable things, there's sometimes an indefinable weariness that can come to us when everything's going good. Do you know what I'm talking about? You, you look at your life and you feel like you've got every reason to be thankful and happy. Not that there's no problems. Yeah, you could pick out some problems in your life to be sure. But overall, you're blessed. But yet there's just a weariness within you. I believe that Jesus Christ wants to speak to you. I believe he spoke to the Apostle Paul. The text tells us so. And I believe that what he spoke to the Apostle Paul will speak to us if we'll open up our ears and listen. Here's God's successful, yet weary, anxious, somewhat fearful servant. And notice what he says to him first. Do not be afraid. Paul, you're afraid because the opposition. Paul, you're afraid Because you see the Corinthian culture all around you and you feel like you guys are just like an island of righteousness and you could be submerged in a tsunami of wickedness because it's everywhere. When Paul walked down the street and he couldn't walk three blocks without getting propositioned by ten prostitutes, don't you think that was weary to his soul? Don't you think just the the filth and the the, the degradation and the, the price that people paid for it, it just wore on him. To see sin and all of its ill effects so manifest in his face every day. That's weariness of soul. Paul, do not be afraid. Don't. Then what does he say next? Verse 9 still. But speak and do not keep silent. Don't you back off from your work, Paul. You speak and don't keep silent. Maybe Paul was so weary or he thought the, the job is so overwhelming. There's so much worldliness all around me. Maybe the, the, the opposition from the synagogue is going to shut me up tomorrow. What's the point? Maybe I should just shut up anyway. No, Paul, you speak and do not keep silent. God has a call on your life. Do not back off from it. That's an important thing for Paul to hear, right? And then he says in verse 10, this is beautiful. For I am with you. I love it. Paul, here's two commands. Don't be afraid. By the way, that's a command. Have you ever embraced that as a command? God's command to you today, don't be afraid. God's command to you today, keep working in the calling to which God has called you. Don't you back off from it. For Paul, that was expressed in the word speak and do not keep silent. But why? Why should I do it, God? You know, I just love it how God doesn't give us this Positive thinking, pie in the sky, just, you know, every cloud has a silver lining, you know, that kind of weak, lame, buck up, friend, kind of thing, you know. Tough times don't last, but tough people do, you know, and all the rest of that stuff. I'm so happy that God has so much more concrete encouragement for us. You know what his concrete encouragement is for you? For I am with you. You could take that to the bank. You really can I am with you. Jesus is with me. Jesus is beside me. Jesus is right there. His sympathy is with me. His attention is with me. I'm a co-worker together with him. He promises that his presence will be there. For I am with you. That's not some, you know, dream with rainbows and unicorns. That's beautiful. That's concrete. He is with you. And, verse 10, if that's not enough, for I have many people in this city... Paul, you wonder if your work's doing anything? You, you wonder if maybe it's just all, you know, fizzling out. No. Paul, i got many people in this city. I know it seems overwhelming to you. I know that the, the job just seems like you're going to be submerged by all the worldliness around you. But I have many people in this city. And look at the payoff, verse 11. It's wonderful. He continued there a year and six months. Now, having read the previous part of the book, Acts, we're shocked by this, right? Paul was always getting run out of town after a couple of weeks. Corinth. A year and six months. God kept him there longer than any city to date because he founded a church. He describes it very simply there, verse 11. He was teaching the word of God among them, sinking it down deep. Think of all that Paul must have taught them in that year and a half, right? Oh, he taught them a lot about Jesus, who he is and what he did for them on the cross and in the empty tomb. He taught them about heaven and hell because that's real, isn't it? Taught about the judgment to come. Taught him all about the works of the Holy Spirit and the operation of the Holy Spirit. Taught them, taught them, taught them. He taught them the word of God. He presented it among them. And it's just beautiful. God speaking to his weary saint, strengthening him through those words. Well, you want to know how much God was protecting Paul? Look at this story starting at verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat saying... This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, you can just imagine Paul thinking, here we go again, right? Here we go again. You know, I've got this hostility, this opposition. The guys from the synagogue are very angry with me, or at least some of them are, dragging before the judgment seat. here we go. Now look at verse 14 where it says, And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be some reason why I should hear. bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names and your own law, look to yourselves. For I don't want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Isn't that great? Right about when Paul's going to say, Okay, I'll defend myself the best I can, before he could say a word, God defended him through this gallop through this man who was the proconsul of Achaia. Isn't that remarkable? God defended him. God was fulfilling the promise that he made to Paul before. Didn't he tell Paul, don't be afraid? Didn't he tell Paul, speak? Well, he said, Paul, I got your back on this. I made the promise. You're believing it. You can have confidence in it. You can walk in it. You'll see God's work done. And that's exactly what he did. Do you want to know something how remarkable this was? God used this man, Gallo, even though he was a wicked man. You want to see this? I'll show you his wickedness. Look at it starting here at verse 17. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Well, that's bad, isn't it? I mean, listen, Gallio may have been a wicked man. He might have cared not anything for the Jewish people. He may have sided with Paul just to offend the Jewish people who brought him the argument. I don't know. Nevertheless, God used it and God protected Paul, protecting him even through a weak and wicked man. Well, verse 18 is going to describe the end of Paul's missionary journey, the end of his work there in Corinth. Look at it with me. He says, So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria. Where he had taken a vow. Okay, so there's Paul. He stays in Corinth a long time, a year and a half in total. But then he says, okay, guys, it's time for me to head for Syria. What was in Syria? Well, his hometown, Antioch. It's time for him to go back to his home church in Antioch on the Orontes, Syrian Antioch. But did you notice there in verse 18 what he did? It says Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He lived with them for a year and a half. They ministered side by side. They did a tremendous work. Paul's about ready to take off. And he goes, hey, Aquila, Priscilla, you guys want to come with me? I'm heading back. They say, hot dog, Paul, we'll go with you. We love it. These fast friends of the Apostle Paul continued with him, and they made their first stop over to Crencia, and then they were going to head off towards Syria on a boat. But one thing I need to look at with you before we go to verse 19. Did you see verse 18? Did this surprise some of you? He had his hair cut off at Xencria, for he had taken a vow. What vow was that? I let some of the bald heads out in our thing. I wonder if you've taken just such a vow, right? No, 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 no. Paul had his hair cut off for taking a vow. Do you know what vow this was? It's sort of interesting. We're we're, we're on the same sort of thing on Wednesday night in the book of Judges. This has to do with the vow of a Nazarite, right? The Nazarite was a special vow where you would specially consecrate yourself to God by doing three things. Number one, you wouldn't cut your hair for the entire time of the vow. Number two, you would stay away from everything that would come from the grapevine, right? No grape juice, no wine, no raisins, no raisin bran, nothing like that, okay? Anything came from the grapevine, you weren't to touch it. Thirdly as part of the vow of Nazarite, you would not go near any kind of a dead body, either a human dead body or an animal dead body. That wasn't for you at all. And through these three things, you would specially consecrate yourself unto the Lord. Well, at the conclusion of your Nazarite vow, let's say you took a Nazarite vow for a year. At the end of it, you would cut off your hair and you would take that hair over to the temple in Jerusalem and offer it in a special ceremony before the Lord and that would be your sacrifice unto God. It would be the end of your season of consecration. And that's what Paul was going to do. Now this sort of blows my mind for a couple reasons. First of all, it tells us where Paul is going. When he leaves Corinth with a handful of hair, he's going to Jerusalem to offer it, okay? The second thing it tells us, And again, I think this is just a wonderful reminder from Luke as he writes the book of Acts. He's reminding us Paul is not anti-Jewish, right? He's still observing this Jewish custom that was meaningful to him as a method of consecration. He wasn't saying, oh, I want nothing to do with Judaism or any of its forms or any of its practices. No, not at all. Paul still carried on in some of the traditions of Israel because he was a Jewish man. He said, this is a completely legitimate way for me to express my consecration unto God, even though my faith is fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah. So at Centria, they get on the boat. They head out to Ephesus. Look at verse 19. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with him, he did not consent but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep the coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. So you see what Apostle Paul does, right? Our little travelogue. He leaves Corinth, he goes over to another coastal city that's called Centria, and then he goes over to the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus, again, is one of the great cities of the ancient world. Wouldn't you like to know more about Ephesus? You will later. Paul's going to come back there. We're not going to talk much about it now, other than to say that this is a city that Paul was passionate about reaching for the gospel. He wanted to go there a couple years before, but God said, no, you can't go there. I want you to go to Europe. I want you to go to Macedon. And he gave him a vision of the Macedonian man. So Paul didn't go to Ephesus then, but now God says it's fine for you to go now. And that's exactly what he did. He went there. He had a great introduction. What did he do? You saw it right there in verse 19. He came to Ephesus and he preached in the synagogue, right? There he was, fulfilling that special timing from the Lord, preaching in the synagogue at Ephesus. But then it says in verse 19 that he left them there. Who's the them that he left in Ephesus? His good friends Priscilla and Aquila. You know, it's not like Paul was anxious to get rid of people. We've seen this in Paul, right? He likes having people around. But yet what God started at Ephesus was so good that he said, I've got to leave behind my trusted friends, Aquila and Priscilla. I'll leave them there so that they continue on the work. I'm going to take my handful of hair and head back to Jerusalem. And that's exactly what he did. Verse 20 and 21. They asked him to stay a longer time, but he did not consent, but took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep the coming feast in Jerusalem He says, I've got to go, and so I'm going to leave. Verse 22, he leaves. Are you ready more for the travelogue? Here we go. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, that's Jerusalem, he went down to Antioch. So you see what he's done? First, he goes all the way from Ephesus over to Caesarea. By the way, it was just a few weeks ago. We were standing in Caesarea, that very same city on the shores of the Mediterranean where Paul preached. We did a little video from there, right? Maybe some of you saw that. It's that same place Paul would have sailed into, landed at Caesarea, greeted the Christian community there. Then what does it say in verse 22? He had gone up and greeted the church. That meant he went to Jerusalem, went to Jerusalem, fulfilled his vow. And then when that was finished, he went further north back to his home church in Antioch. Friends, could you imagine the reception that Paul had there? For about three years, I would figure, maybe a little shorter, maybe a little longer, but for about three years, Paul was gone on the second missionary journey. Then he came back and gave them a report. Oh, let me tell you what God did in Philippi. Let me tell you what God did in Thessalonica. Let me tell you what God did in Berea. Let me tell you what God did in Athens. Let me tell you what God did in Corinth. And then I even stopped in Ephesus on the way back. Paul gives them the whole story. And if you're anything like me, If they are anything like us, they would have been amazed at what Paul did and what he said. I guess kind of here's the question I have for you. How did this man keep going? How did this man actually do this? How did he go from city to city so boldly preaching the gospel, usually supporting himself, uh, despite all the opposition, despite all the hardship, despite all the people he had to leave or who left him? How did he keep on going? I'll tell you, God knew how to strengthen Paul. God knew how to carry him despite all the demands of the previous three years or so he carried on. And I'll just conclude with this. I think there's two main ways in which Paul was able to carry on. Number one, God brought him people, right? People to support him. Timothy, Silas, Aquila, Priscilla. Those were strategic people that God brought into his life to be a support, to be a strength, to be a blessing. Friends, are you very open to that idea? I want you to be completely open to the idea that Jesus may want to bring you what you need through another person. Another person. Maybe somebody sitting right around you. Maybe somebody you haven't even met yet. Maybe somebody's going to stand up here on the prayer team afterwards. Jesus often wants to meet your need through another person. And I'll just call it what it is. Sometimes it's our pride that makes us say, no, only Jesus directly can reach my need. Well, listen, I'll just tell you, there's oftentimes people who wallow in some kind of misery, who, who are despairing, who, who are at their point of weariness and it seems unrelieved. Why? Why? Because God has everything available to meet their need. He just wants to bring it to to you through another person, and you're shutting that person out. God brought this to Paul through people. But then there's another way, maybe even a more precious way. God brought Paul a special word. Did you see it? Do you remember it in verses 9 and 10? What did God say to Paul? He said three things that I believe with all my heart that even though he spoke them in some demonstrable way to the Apostle Paul, I think God would want to speak the exact same things to you. I believe it. I believe that God's word was not for Paul only, but it speaks to us across the centuries by the power of the Holy Spirit to you and to I. I believe that there are weary souls. I believe there's people... You you may not have any reason to be weary. You might have every reason to be weary. But there's weary souls, and Jesus wants to speak to you right now about your need. Here's what he wants to say. Jesus says this to you. Now, I know the person next to you, your husband and wife, you're elbowing them in the ribs. Okay, listen up, this is for you. Okay, it is for them, but it's for you, for you directly. This is what Jesus says to you. Do not be afraid. Can you let Jesus speak that to your soul for just a moment? Do not be afraid. I don't care who tells you, you've got a reason to be afraid. The command of Jesus to you is do not be afraid. Here's the second word Jesus has for you. For I am with you. Do you believe that? If you believe it, what can you not face? Can't you just exhale for a moment and realize if he is with me, it's going to be all right. Then how about this third one? For I have many people in this city. He does, don't you know? He really does. He has many people. You may feel like you're all alone. You, you may feel like God's cause is losing. I have many people in this city, God is telling you. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. For I have many people in this city. You let God speak those words to your soul. Um, He will. He will keep you going, and you will not succumb to the weariness that's bothering you right here, right now. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the matchless love of our Savior. The same love that drove him to the cross. The same love that made him give everything for us. The same love that sustains us right now. Jesus, I pray that you'd speak that word to each individual soul. And I pray, Lord, especially for those who have had a hard time believing it. They had a hard time believing that they shouldn't be afraid. A hard time believing that you are with them. A hard time believing that you've got many in this city. Jesus, persuade our unbelieving hearts. Do it, Lord. Do it for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.